Hey, this is Lee Snow, the preacher for the Warm Springs Road Church of Christ here in Columbus, Georgia. And you have found our podcast. We hope that this message inspires you, that it equips you, and that it builds your faith in Jesus Christ like never before. If you have any questions or you want to tell us your story, we'd love to hear from you. Please feel free to reach out at any time. We are here for you. We're here for each other. Most importantly, we're here for the Lord. Kind of topically hit, hit, hitting the major points here and there um, on Sunday mornings for our worship service. In, in Matthew chapter 6, 5, 6, and 7 in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells his disciples how to pray. And, and he says that the model prayer, the Lord's prayer, whatever you want to call it, the prayer that Jesus prays in the Sermon on the Mount in order to teach his disciples how to pray after they ask him how to pray, He says something that is the only phrase in the entire prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and power and glory forever. Amen. If you've ever prayed a... Sorry, if you've ever played a sport in the southeast United States, you have prayed that prayer a million times. The only phrase in the prayer that is relatively um, ambiguous, relatively outdated, is that that second phrase. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come on earth, or your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Acts chapter 1... And then following Acts chapter 2 and so forth, you have that kingdom coming. So what we're going to be doing is we're going to be studying through the book of Acts. And we're going to see how the kingdom grows and how the kingdom actually did come. Because that's what it is. We call it Acts, but the whole name of the book, the name that was given to the books, is the Acts of the Apostles. And then some translations, some Bibles, yours may have... um, the older style name, the Acts of the Apostles. And then underneath that, it'll say, in the beginning of the church, or the beginning of the the age of Christianity, or something like that. Some little statement after that. What we're going to be doing is looking at how the church started, how the kingdom actually got its start. Now, in Acts 1, the main thing we're going to focus on is is verses 6 through 11 that we read for the scripture reading this morning. And I'm going to go ahead and read it again just for, for, uh, to remind us. So, Acts 6.1, When they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Now, notice this. Okay, so, hundreds of years prior to this, in around 586 B.C., So almost 600 years prior to Jesus saying this, in fact, right at 600 years prior, given the the time it took for Jesus to be born and grow to this age and so forth, right at about 600 years prior to this, the nation of Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, had been taken into captivity by Babylon. And eventually, the Persians would take hold of Babylon, and then King Cyrus, and then King Artaxerxes would start sending the people back. We looked at that last week. Okay, so 
From that moment on, Israel was never a state by themselves again. In fact, a lot of biblical commentaries and a lot of biblical uh, quote-unquote theologians talk about this concept that it's called the perpetual servants, servitude or, or um, perpetual slavehood of Israel. And it's this idea that after they came back from the captivity, after they came back from Babylonian captivity and then subsequently Persian captivity because Persia took over Babylon, they always were looking for this, 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 this old kingdom. They always wanted their kingdom back. It's something that meant a lot to them because it, it would be, it would tell them that they were finally back in God's good graces. But the reality is that when they went into captivity, God took away that option for them to remind them of what they had been doing. So for the last 600 years leading up to this, Israel has been captives. Maybe not in the same way they were in Babylon or in Assyria or in Persia. They weren't slaves to Rome or to Greek, to Greece. But they were, they were under their rule. They never had their own entity. They never had their own society, their own nation again. And they were wanting that. They were longing for that. In fact, most of what we looked at last week and the, um, the books of the Old Testament that, was written, that were written between the time of, of Malachi and, uh, and, and Jesus being born, the, the, the Apocrypha of the Old Testament, most of those books are bent toward the idea that, that they are pushing back toward, toward their own society, First and Second Maccabees and so forth. If you have time this week, you can, you can look up that. But anyways, they're always wanting this, this kingdom to be restored. So, after spending roughly three years with Jesus, the disciples, even though they know that the Lord's kingdom is not of this earth, even though they know these passages and know the, 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 the statements that we have recorded in, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John about the fact that the kingdom was never coming back, they knew that, but it was still almost ingrained in them to be looking for the kingdom. Because, frankly... Up until this point, Jesus has been preaching the kingdom. In fact, in uh, Mark chapter 1 and verse 14, now John was arrested. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel and saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. So they were confused. The disciples never really got the picture of what the church was going to be until after Jesus would, would be ascending into, into heaven in Acts chapter 1. So they ask him, verse 6, Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said, it's not for you to know the times or seasons. That's not your job. You don't need to be paying attention to that, that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you, here's what you need to pay attention to. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he says these things, while they're looking up, he's lifted up, a cloud takes him out of their sight. They turn around and there are two men, presumably angels in white robes, saying, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him going into heaven. So, he says, the, the kingdom is, it's not your job to try to figure out when God's going to establish the kingdom. Fast forward to Acts chapter 2, and a few days later, and the kingdom is going to be established, but it's not the same kingdom that they're thinking about in Acts 1. They're thinking of that 
that physical kingdom. They, they, want, they want the throne of David to have someone sitting in it again. They want for, for Rome to be pushed out of Jerusalem so that, so that the, the kingdom of Judea, the kingdom of Israel, can, can once again be a thriving kingdom. And what he's trying to remind them is, you don't really know what you're asking. You don't really know what, what you even are saying. You're talking about the kingdom, but you're looking for a physical kingdom and it's just not going to happen that way. And so he tells them, what you need to do is wait until you receive power from the Holy Spirit and then you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and in Samaria and to the other most parts of the earth. He tells them essentially the same thing that he told them earlier in Matthew chapter 28, 19, and 20 where he told them, I want you to go, I want you to preach the gospel to all nations, I want you to baptize the people that, that are willing to be baptized, take disciples, make more disciples, find the people that know about God and know about Jesus, or have at least heard about Jesus, and teach them the gospel and have them baptized. And then when you meet somebody who doesn't know the gospel, and you do, doesn't know Jesus, and has never heard about this, or maybe has never even heard of J- Jerusalem or Judea or, or Jewish religion at all, I want you to take them and teach them how to be disciples. Then I want you to baptize them and I want you to continue to teach them everything that I've taught you and I'll be with you. I'll be, I'll be sitting right beside you as it were, figuratively speaking, taking care of you and making sure that you're okay. Now, in Acts 1, he says the way he's going to do that is when the power comes from the Holy Spirit. And then you look in the rest of the book, or rest of the chapter rather, and you see them actually receiving this this power, rather, chapter 2, verses 1 through uh, 13, that section right there. So, let's talk about evangelism, or about this mission. He gives them a mission in Matthew chapter 28. It's reiterated in Acts chapter 1, right before he goes back into heaven. He says, I want you to be, I want you to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and in Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And because of that, people get so scared to death because we mention the word witness. They had seen Jesus. Unless you were that person, that woman in 2013 that I talk about all the time who was sitting in the worship service and said she saw Jesus standing beside me on the pulpit, you have never seen Jesus. And in fact, she didn't either. Um, anyways, pray for her. So, um, we've never seen him. We didn't see what he had did. We didn't, we didn't watch him put the ear back on Malchus. We didn't watch him feed the 5,000. We didn't watch him give the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, but the concept of, of Matthew chapter 28 being their call, if you want to call it that, their obligation to start in Jerusalem and then Judea and then Samaria and then to the uttermost parts of the earth, it, it's still binding on us. It's still important for us to pay attention to. The fact that they were supposed to focus not on going to some faraway country first. They were not supposed to focus on making sure that the people in Europe, the Gauls at that time, or a little bit later the Gauls would be established. Their their job wasn't to focus on the people in Corinth yet, or to focus on the people in Ephesus yet, or to focus on the people in down in Carthage yet. Their purpose was to focus on the people that were right beside them. In fact, in Matthew chapter 28, our translations say go, but in reality, it says as you are going. So you pay attention to the people that are around you, and you teach them the gospel. 
whether they're disciples already or they need to be discipled. Now, the phrase disciple just means someone who knows and learns and is willing to learn more about Jesus. That's why it is so important for Christians to be disciples today. So, evangelism, the Great Commission, the great mission that he's given us. Jesus modeled it. We looked at that in Mark chapter 1. In Matthew chapter 9, he goes from city to city, our cities and villages teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. He, he modeled it. He trained his disciples how to do it before he sent out the 70 in Mark chapter 6. And then in Luke chapter 10, he tells them, here's how I want you to do this. I want you to go into a city. If there are people who listen to you, I want you to teach them about me. Tell them that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If they don't listen to you, you I want you to shake the dust off your feet. It wasn't some magical thing. It, it, was, it was simply just to, to remind them that I don't want you to take any burden with you. I don't want you to take any guilt with you because you have preached the gospel to them. You've told them about the kingdom of heaven coming and they weren't willing to listen to it. In fact, in Ezekiel chapter 3, he says that when God warns a person about his wicked ways and you don't give him warning, that man's blood will be required at your hand. But if you do give him warning, it's the same concept as in Luke chapter 10. Shake the dust off your feet. You've done your job. You've tried to teach them. You've tried to help them. And if they're not willing to listen, then there's not a whole lot you can do. But our job is to say focus on the mission. Now, we are innately um, selfish. And so whenever we talk about evangelism, we talk about the mission that we've been given by God and by Jesus it's important for us to realize what we get out of it because it, it can sometimes become very daunting, the fact that well, we have the mission as the church today to teach the gospel to every person on earth. Well, there, are, there are seven, maybe eight billion people on earth. How in the world are we supposed to do that? How are we supposed to even preach the gospel to, to the 310 to 320 million that are in the United States? How are we even supposed to preach the gospel to the 210,000 people that are in Columbus or the roughly 400,000 people that are within about a 30 to 45 minute drive from here? How are we supposed to do that when the fact of the matter is, is there's only about 1,000 to maybe 1,200 members of the church and Christians and disciples who know the gospel in that area? If we've only got 1,200 people, how are we supposed to teach the gospel to 400,000 people? And it would become very daunting and we say, well, the job just can't be done. And so we'll just leave that to someone else. And then what happens when we leave that to someone else is those numbers get even smaller and the numbers get even bigger. Because what we do when we say, well, it's just too much work as the church, not as a church, but as the church, as Christians all over the world, what we do when we say that it's too much work is, in fact, we, we whittle our numbers down from, say, 1,200 in Columbus to 30. The preachers and elders and a couple members here and there at each congregation that see the benefit in it. And we say, the job is too big. There's no way we can do it. We'll just leave it to someone else. And we're, in reality, we make the job impossible. When it is possible when all of us are together. 
So let's look at some of the things that we get out of our mission, okay? So I went over all this already. Number one, the mission that we've been given grows our love for God and for our neighbor. We have been called in Mark chapter 12. Let me put it up here because I I usually read from English Standard Version, you know, but um, the New King James really hits this home in Mark 12, 29 through 31. Jesus answered them, the first of all commandments is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. That's called the Shema. It's a, it's a saying that, that the Jews would have said every morning. Um, in fact, they even, Jewish men, if you read the Old Testament, you'll see that the Shema, Deuteronomy chapter 6, was actually written down. Um, imagine taking a, a fine pen and writing on a piece of leather the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And they would take that, le- that piece of leather, and they would roll it up, and they had a little locket, as it were, and they would put this piece of leather in the locket, and then they would hang it between their ears so that it hung right here. Jewish men would have the Shema hanging between, between their eyebrows. Or, in some of our case, between our eyebrow. Anyways, so, it was so important to them that not only would they hang it on their foreheads and write it on their foreheads, but they would, they would also have these little scrolls that they would write it on and they would hang it beside their doorpost. In, in essence, to say that if you come into this house, you are willing to say the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And so Jesus says, this is the first commandment. That is not something that they would have ever questioned. It was, it was their favorite commandment. That and anything, well, if you're speaking to the Pharisees, that and anything that has to do with how long you can walk on Saturday, how you have to wash yourself before you eat, and so forth. So this is something that everyone knows but this next, this next statement that he says, this is the one that really, really will cause some problems when they hear it. And the second is like, this, like it is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Now, hang on a second. Because I want to break down the, the language here in Mark chapter 12 very quickly. So Jesus says... The first commandment, the greatest commandment, is the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love your Father with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and so forth. But then, the reason why I grabbed the New King James in this is because of that next statement. And the second, like it, is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment. Not commandments. It's not plural. It's singular. So, the importance of why I grabbed New King James is because it it really carries the language here. He says, here's the greatest commandment that everyone agrees upon. Love the Lord. And the second is actually part of it. It's, It's like it. It's the same as it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And combined, these two statements, love the Lord and love your neighbor, these combined statements 
are the greatest commandment, single commandment, that God had ever given and God has ever given. It's all one. You cannot love God without loving your neighbor. You cannot love your neighbor without loving God. This morning we watched the sermon that Don Blackwell gave at PTP this past year, Polishing the Pulpit. And he mentioned all of the good things that people had been doing because they knew who he was or because they saw him. He mentioned a person in, in a restaurant, who a waiter, who saw him in the chair, asked him why he was in the chair, he told him the story, and that waiter paid for his meal. All of the things, everything, I, I, I dare you to find a single atheist, a single agnostic, a single person who is against the gospel or against the kingdom of God, a single person who does anything good, innately good, that doesn't get the concept from the, from the Bible or from the gospel. Everything that is good, every good way that we treat other people is because God has told us how to do that. He's put it in us. In fact, the old theologians used to say that God has placed a, a God-shaped hole within us. You cannot love God without loving your neighbor. And if you love your neighbor, if you do good to people, it's because God showed you how to do it in the first place. And our mission grows that. It, it encourages that. It reminds us how much, how important it is for us to love our neighbor. It is as equal as loving God. It means you cannot come to church and love God and then leave and not love your neighbor. If you do, you've wasted your time in church. First Timothy chapter 1 and verse 2, um, he would write to, to the man named Timothy, his protege, and he says, to Timothy, my true child in the faith. Sharing our faith with others is not just something that, that we do because we get something out of it. We do get much out of it. We'll talk about that as we go. But sharing our faith with others gives us the love that we need for the other people to take care of them. Why, why is it so important for Paul to write that? I mean, think about it. Paul is a busy, busy man. Paul is a man who doesn't have a lot of time to sit around and just write letters to Christians all the time. And the letters that he did write were so important that they were preserved in the gospel. There's only one letter that he wrote that we don't have, that we know existed, and that's the first letter to the Corinthians. And presumably, the reason why it's not available to us is because because everything he mentioned in that is also mentioned in the other letters. Number one, the mission grows our love for our God and our neighbor. Number two, it protects us from mistakenly assuming that the people that are around us, our neighbors, the people that we're loving, are actually saved. One of the most dangerous things that could ever happen to the church is the idea that it happens on... It happens all the time. It happens to me even. It happens to every Christian from one point or another. The most dangerous thing that can happen to the mission is for us to, to get into this rhythm of thinking that every time a person claims Christianity or is involved in some church work or is involved in some parachurch work, if you want to use that term, that that means that they are saved. 
that if they just claim Christianity, you know, they're, they're a good person, they love their neighbor, that that innately means that they don't need the gospel. That's just simply not true. The person who's been sitting in the pew for 50 or 60 years needs the gospel just as much as the person that's at Walmart right now grocery shopping. The person who has claimed Christianity for years and years and loves their neighbor but has no true concept of what God is or who God is or what He calls us to do needs the gospel just as much as every other person. And our mission is not to pick and choose individual people. If that were the case, let me, let me use a story here very quickly. One time I was, uh, I was preaching at a gospel meeting. I think it was a Tuesday night maybe. Um, I don't remember which night of the week it was. Anyways, it was for a, a church in Mississippi. And um, I had driven down from Memphis to, to, to this congregation. I'm not going to tell you the city. But I'd driven down from... Um, from Memphis to this congregation. It was about 30 minutes or so. It was right outside. One of my friends was the preacher there. And I was preaching the, the gospel meeting, and the gospel meeting was on evangelism. They were trying to, to jumpstart their church's um, push to try to convert their, their friends and their family and, and teach people in their community the gospel. And after worship service was over, one of the brothers walked up to me, and we were talking for a minute, and, and he said, you know what we really need? And I thought given the, the topic of the gospel meeting, given the sermon that I had just preached, because you know every time uh, you preach a sermon, you think that everybody's mind is completely changed and everyone's on the same path and everybody's ready to go. And that's just, anyways, not naivete. Anyways, he said, you know what we really need? We need to convert like a lawyer or an engineer or something. And I said, why? And he said, so we can get some money so that we can, we can use house to house. And I thought, I think you've missed the point of evangelism altogether. It's not a civic group where you, you recruit people that will help the group grow or help the, the mission of the group grow. The mission reminds us, our, our great commandment, the great commission reminds us that mistakenly assuming that every person is saved or a group of people are saved or picking and choosing this one and that one, the mission reminds us that we cannot assume that we know who is going to obey the gospel. We cannot assume who doesn't need to hear it. In fact, in Mark chapter 4, um, Mark recorded, recorded this. Mark chapter 4, verses 2 through 8. And as he was teaching them many things in parables, and in his teaching he said to them, Behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it, and others' seed fell on the rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, and since it had no depth of soil, and when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns. The thorns grew up and choked it and yielded no grain. 
And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain growing up and increasing and yielding 30-fold and 60-fold and, and 100-fold. And the interesting thing about all of this is that they all relatively produce some sort of plant in one degree or another. Look back at this. As he sowed, some fell among the path, and the birds devoured it. Okay, well, that one doesn't, didn't produce any fruit at all, but other seed fell on the rocky ground where it didn't have much soil. Immediately it sprang up. It, you've got some sort of remnant of the plant, resemblance of the plant, and because it didn't have any soil, it, the sun came and scorched it, and because it had no root, it withered. And then others fell among the thorns, and it grew a little bit, but then the thorns choked it out. Of the four types of soil, three of them produce some sort of resemblance of the plant that is being sowed, or in this case, the gospel. We cannot assume that just because a person claims like that they're a Christian, or just because a person slightly resembles a Christian in one way or another, that they don't need the gospel. Number three, our mission prompts us, prompts unexpected questions, and then it also prompts <laughs> objections from non-Christians. I saw uh, a friend of mine had uh, asked a question on social media about a, three or four weeks ago, and the question was, why do people not evangelize? Why do Christians not share their faith with other people? And some, some folks chimed in, well, it's because they don't know enough. It's because they, they don't know enough people or they don't know enough gospel. Some people chimed in and said, well, they just don't have enough time. They're, they're busy. They think they're too busy to evangelize or think they're too busy to invite their friend or their family to, to church with them or they think they're too busy to sit down even if they, know, if they think that they know enough, they don't have enough time to take two hours on a Monday night and sit down across the dinner table or at a coffee shop with one of their friends and try to teach them what they believe. But when it boils down to it, the reason why Christians don't tell people about the gospel is because it doesn't mean anything to them. It hasn't taken shape. Now, I want to use another story. Maybe not a story but something that I've re recognized over the last few years. For the last six years, Rebecca and I have been part of a group called the Junior Chamber of Commerce, or JCs. And about three years ago, I noticed something that really struck me, which is why, which is why it's so important for us. And it's this. Do you know that people around you, not just in civic groups or in any other group, do you know that people around you are looking for something that is, resembles the church? And when they find it, they will do whatever it takes to tell people about it. In fact, most of the people in that group that we're a part of, to them, that group is their church. And it's terrifying. And our mission prompts us to be willing to put ourselves in positions where people are going to object to, for the gospel. Because they're looking for it. And even though 
I, I promise you, I promise you, that the people that object to the gospel are not objecting to you, and they aren't even objecting to the gospel most of the time. The people that, that come up with all of those statements that you're scared of, or that other, maybe not you, because you're all stone-cold evangelists, right? But the people that bring up those statements like, oh, you're the only ones that think you're going to heaven, right? Oh, you're the ones that don't use instruments. You think all instruments are sinful, right? Oh, you don't like music. You think anybody who plays music is going to hell, right? Oh, you're the ones that think that you have to be baptized in order to be saved, right? The people that say those statements are saying them because they don't have a clue what is actually believed. They don't understand what you actually do. The, one of my very good friends a few years ago named David used to say that all the time. You're the ones that think you're the only ones going to heaven, right? And about six months ago, he sent me a, a text message. And he said, okay, I'm finally ready. Explain to me why you believe you have to be a part of the church in order to go to heaven. And I explained it to him. He said, that makes perfect sense to me. He said, see, it's not the fact that we think we're the only ones going to heaven. It's the fact that we think that you have to follow God in order to go to heaven. And we believe that if you don't follow God the way that they followed Him in the New Testament when they were inspired to do so, then you're not really following God and you're following yourself. See, the people that, that come up with those objections and come up with those, those questions, they're doing so out of, out of ignorance. It's not because they hate God. It's not because they hate you. simply because they don't know. And, and being a person who is on mission, being a person who, who lives out this mission on a daily basis prompts those questions. You don't have to be scared. You know enough. If you're sitting regularly in a building worshiping, you know enough. If you've been baptized for the remission of your sins, you know enough. You don't have to be scared. For time's sake, we're going to skip the next one. And we're going to go to the last point that I had, which was the mission increases the likelihood of being persecuted. There's a reason why I didn't put this one at the beginning, um, because it's one that we don't often like. I dare you to read the book of Acts this week. And then I want you to write down every bad thing that happens to a Christian in the book of Acts. And then I want you out beside when you write down those bad things, maybe just write out the passage that it happens in. Out beside it, write what would have happened if that person wasn't on mission for the gospel. James is killed. Paul is persecuted numerous times. Peter and Barnabas are put in prison. Paul and Silas are arrested. So forth and so on. Sorry, I got those back. Peter and Silas are arrested. Paul and Barnabas were arrested as well. Over and over and over again. None of those bad things would have happened. But then out beside that, write all the good things that happened because of it. Our mission increases the likelihood that we will be persecuted. And that is a good thing. The best thing that can ever happen to the church is persecution. Last week, as we were ending services, I got a text message that said, check Twitter. And I said, oh, what is this? And I knew what it was. I pulled up Twitter because that's where, where 
I get my news. That's sad. Anyways, I pulled up Twitter and I realized that our brethren at the West Freeway congregation had an incident. I knew when I got that text message, that's what that text message was about. And then I pulled up Facebook. And I saw Christian after Christian after Christian after Christian after Christian praying for the West Freeway congregation. And then I saw one of our brothers in Christ all over national news, not just talking about what happened, but he was able to to tell them about the gospel in some way because of that persecution. What that guy didn't realize is he just lit a fire under the church that will never stop in that community. Everyone in that community knows the West Freeway congregation. And now they're willing to look into what they believe. Persecution never stops the church. Gamaliel said it in the book of Acts. He said, we'll get there eventually. He said, if this is from God, there's nothing we can do to stop it. If it's not from God, it'll die by itself. He was urging the Sanhedrin to not persecute the church because he knew exactly what was going to happen. And that is, every time you write out a bad thing that happens, look at all the good that comes from it. There is nothing that is negative about being on mission for the gospel of Christ. Nothing. Nothing at all. Well, my friends won't like me. My family won't like me. This person will, will ask questions that are derogatory or this person will say things derogatory or I might lose my job. or I might. That, those are all positives. I promise you, they are all positives. They may not sound like it, but that's why James 1 says... Count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations or trials. Because even though they don't look like positives right now, if you were to write a book of Acts about the persecutions of the church for the last 2,000 years, you'd be able to see, because hindsight is twenty you'd be able to see all the good that has come from those persecutions. If you need to become a Christian this morning, we're going to stand and we're going to sing a song of encouragement for you. If you are a Christian, let me say this. You need to look for opportunities in the next seven days to where you can put yourself in positions to teach them the gospel. There's probably a, a neighbor, a friend, a family member, someone else who may ask questions if you just seem like you're willing to answer them. And maybe it may take starting a conversation that is a little awkward. But what is more awkward? Starting a conversation or having thousands of people stand up and say you're drunk, which would happen in Acts chapter 2, because that power actually came and they started preaching in tongues. You don't have the opportunity to preach in tongues, so no one's going to tell you that you're drunk. So that's a positive in and of itself, isn't it? Anyways, let's go ahead and stand and sing a song.